The reading is Luke chapter 5, 1 to 16. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding round him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. He sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore and left everything and followed him. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell, to his, fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This is God's word. My name is Phil. I'm the assistant minister here. And I'm delighted to be bringing us God's word tonight. It's a fantastic passage. Let's pray and then we'll look at it together. Our Father God, we thank you. We thank you that the Lord Jesus came to call sinners. We thank you that to give all to follow him is the way to richness, fullness, and eternal life. Help us to see that, that we might commit ourselves afresh to him tonight. Amen. Now, Luke 5 is all about following Jesus. That's what's going on here. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Now, there are lots of ways you can follow somebody, especially these days. And it depends, what it means to follow somebody depends on who they are. So if they're, they're an internet Instagram influencer, to follow them means, well, you subscribe to their, uh, their feed and you feel rubbish about your life as you compare your miserable average existence with their shiny, happy, perfect life, which is always like that. It's not just the photographs. That's what it means to follow someone who's an Instagram internet influencer. A bit more commitment required to follow a political party or a political leader. To follow them, I guess it means to vote for them, which is to entrust them with power to determine my taxes, power to put me at war with another country. You entrust quite a lot of authority to somebody. You give them a certain degree of control over your life. Or you can follow a cause. 
Uh, today is a global car-free day. I celebrated it by driving to church this morning because I hadn't realised. Um, oops. Uh, actually, I think it was there were four in the car, carbon neutral. Um, the but to 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 follow a cause. Well, it might mean it might mean a bit more than just wearing a badge, Extinction Rebellion badge. It, it might mean uh, well, I I start trying to live sustainably. It might mean I stop air travel to reduce my carbon footprint. Although, would you think me an awful cynic if I said I don't think that applies to celebrities who follow these causes? Anyway, no, that would be a cynical thing to say. Let's, let's not go there. We're a happy, happy people. Um, we got away with it. Uh, but what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? Now, whether you're just looking into Christian things, weighing up the Christian message, perhaps been brought here by a friend, or whether you call yourself a committed Christian, I don't think there's any more important question. What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? And again, the answer depends on who he is. And what we learn tonight is that Jesus is almighty God, the word of God in human flesh. And to follow him, well, it means leaving everything. It means leaving everything. Okay, let's, uh, let's look through the passage. You've got an outline so you can uh, see where we're going. We're really just going to um, go through 1 to 11. There's, uh, there's more than enough in there to keep us busy uh, for the next half an hour. So firstly, the magnetic, mighty word of God. Uh, turn up Luke 5, if you've closed your Bibles, page 1032, verse 1, Luke 5, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's uh, just another word for Lake Galilee. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Now, for once, the front pew at church is not empty and the, and the people are absolutely crowding around. It's, it's, it's not really describing something like a church service. It's more like, uh, it's more like bank station on a Monday morning trying to get into a delayed train. It's a, a real press or perhaps if it's church, it's when there's been uh, freshly baked cakes after the service. That kind of scrum, everybody pushing forwards, jostling, pushing, complaining. And what's attracting them? Well, it's not the, the northern line. And it's not um, freshly home-baked cakes. It's the word of God. The word of God. That's the magnet that's drawn this crowd. You probably saw the pictures of Norwich Cathedral uh, recently. Um, they decided to attract more people to come to church by putting a helter-skelter into the cathedral. Because that'll make people want to come to church. I, mean, I don't know the people responsible for it, but... It, uh, but it feels from this end a little bit pathetic. But the truth is that churches that, that lose confidence in preaching the word of God are always scrabbling around for ways to attract people in. And yet throughout history where churches have preached the word of God, then like this first century crowd, people have always come. They've always wanted to hear God's word because it is God's living word. It's compelling. It is magnetic, this book. Because this isn't just a, a record of some stuff God said to some people long ago. This is God the Holy Spirit speaking tonight to you and you and you and me. This is God speaking right now. And so the Bible is central to everything we do at Christ Church Mayfair because we love to hear God speak. And we know that these words have spiritual power and divine authority, unlike our own words. 
Now, so the magnetic word of God has drawn this unmanageably large crowd to hear Jesus teach. And so he finds himself a rather strange pulpit. Verse 2. Jesus saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now, the boats they used for, for fishing on the Sea of Galilee were 20 to 30 feet long, shallow boats with a sail and with oars in case there was no wind. And so it being quite a low boat, uh, but as he pushes back from shore, Jesus is able to, to see more and more of the people. And you get this slightly strange scene where um, Jesus goes up to this guy, Simon, and says, look, can I sit in your boat to, to preach? I'm guessing that's the first time anybody's asked him that. But it's not the first time he's met Jesus. So you'll remember last week, um, John, uh, Luke 4, 38 to 39, Simon's mother-in-law, this is Simon who will be called Peter, so Simon Peter, uh, his mother-in-law was dying of a fever and Jesus touched her, healed her and made her totally well. So it's no surprise that he's happy to oblige Jesus' request. And so you end up with this strange scene. The crowd uh, right round the shore, perhaps some people have rolled up trousers to, to wade in a little bit deeper to get close to Jesus so they can hear better. And there's Jesus sat on, on the boat, legs over the side, I guess toes dangling in the water, preaching the word of God to the congregation who have gathered. Now like all the best sermons, this one does eventually finish. And uh, I don't know, that's nervous laughter, I don't know whether Simon was listening as he sat in in his boat sorting the nets. But as the sermon finishes, Simon becomes the centre of attention. And what you'll learn now is that not only is the word of God magnetic enough to draw a crowd, but it is mighty. The word of God has divine power as well as magnetic draw. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Let me suggest, it would be mildly strange if... Towards the end of the sermon tonight, I said, uh, John, uh, I suggest that when you go into the office tomorrow, you change your position and hedge against Central European residential property. I think you'll find it's a much better position. Or Jane, um, look, go back to the lab and get them to rerun the clinical trials. There was, an, there was an error with the last way you ran them. Run them again and you'll find the treatment works brilliantly. Or um, to Tom, um, there's no need to overhaul the entire IT system and recode everything. Just tell them to turn it off and back on again. Everything will be fine. Um, you'd probably say, uh, Phil, stick to teaching the Bible. You know nothing about private equity or, or medicine or IT. Well, likewise, Simon is the fisherman. Jesus is a preacher. He was a carpenter. Neither of those have any relevance for fishing. But, verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now, I don't think this is said in a sort of huffy, passive-aggressive voice. Look, we've worked hard all night, but if you say so, fine. Okay, I'll throw, you know. I think Simon recognizes there is an authority in Jesus, and he does what Jesus says. The word of God is mighty in the lives of men and women. When Jesus speaks, people do. And you can imagine, though, his partners on the shore would have had slightly bemused faces. Hang on, night time's the best time for fishing. We've fished all night, we've caught nothing, and now in broad daylight, you're going back out to fish. You're nuts, Simon. Well, Simon gets out to deep water, throws the, the nets over the side, drops the sail, and sits down with a, with a cup of coffee and, and the Sunday papers. And suddenly there's a whoop, 
and the boat lurches to the side. Verse 6, when they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. Now, I don't know. We're never told Jesus laughed, but I find it hard to read this and think he wasn't laughing. There's Simon grumbling. There's no fish in the Sea of Galilee, no fish at all anywhere. And suddenly finds there are a lot of fish in the Sea of Galilee, and pretty much every single one of them is now in his nets. So full are they that the nets are bursting, the boat is sinking, and his friends in the other boat can only just about rescue them. Now, as a fisherman, Simon has dreamt of days like this. And he's prayed of days like this. I mean, think about it. He's got the largest haul of fish he has ever seen in his life, And right in front of him is an enormous crowd ready to go home for dinner. Oh, yes. This is, this is what you dream of. I mean, this is a captive audience. This is time to clear the debts, buy a new boat. I can build an extension on the house. He's going to need one. The mother-in-law is going to live a lot longer than he thought. It's, you know, this is, this is, this is the best day of Simon's life. This is incredible. And yet none of that is in his mind at all. All of the focus in Simon's mind is on Jesus. Who is this man? And having seen what has just happened, Simon says to Jesus, look, go away from me. And Jesus responds, come and follow me. We'll think about those, uh, that basic thing, go away from me, come and follow me, and the three points you've got down there. And as we do so, we'll start to see what it looks like for you and me to respond to Jesus once we've worked out who he is. Firstly, Peter falls in fearful worship. Verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken as were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Now, what is going on here? Simon spent the the last few hours, I guess, in the boat with Jesus. And now he just wants to get as far away from him as he possibly can. What's he thinking? Simon hasn't lost the plot at all. What he's done is he's grasped the truth, or at least begun to grasp the truth of who Jesus is. He realizes that standing before him in his boat is no ordinary man. Now, I don't think he gets everything yet. It's not like if you said, so who's Jesus? He'd say, well, he is is, uh, God incarnate, uh, God the Son, the second member of the Trinity in human flesh, come to earth to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament and become the Messiah of the Jewish people, die on a cross for the sins of the whole world and rise in triumph to glory, bringing new life and pouring out the Spirit. I don't think he'd have answered that at this point but he can see enough to know this is no ordinary man. He's heard the amazing preaching. He's had, he's had a front row seat to some of the most amazing teaching that has ever taken place on planet Earth. He knows this, this at the very least is a prophet of almighty God, one who teaches the word of God with a power and authority he's never encountered. But he's also had a front row seat to see the impact of Jesus' words. He's seen this man touch someone who's dying and then come to life. He's seen this man say, put out your nets and command nature so that every fish swims into them. Simon doesn't get everything, but he gets enough. He knows that being in this boat with Jesus, he is in the presence of divine power and divine authority. He is with a holy, righteous, perfect being. 
the word of God is in flesh before him in his boat in touching distance. And suddenly he is very aware of his own unworthiness and wants to get away as far as possible from Jesus. A few years back, I was playing rugby, don't laugh, um, and I was much bigger back then. Uh, no, uh, I was quick, though, I was quick. And uh, the beginning of one season had gone pretty well, and I'd started to develop delusions of adequacy about my uh, rugby abilities. And then uh, I got put into the first team, and we played a cup game, and I was, my opposite number was a semi-professional player. And it was utterly, utterly humiliating. In particular, the third try when he literally left stud marks over me as he ran over me. I just, to be with a real, genuinely talented, quality rugby player exposed me horribly. And I looked like what I was, which was a slightly pathetic wannabe who was never big enough, strong enough, and quick enough to play rugby, but enjoyed it a bit. And it was horrible, and I just wanted to get off the pitch. I just wanted to get away because it was humiliating. Jesus isn't offering Simon a game of rugby. It's morally that Jesus exposes him. Simon has heard this perfect teaching of the word of God. And now he starts to see divine authority and suddenly his own sinfulness, as he gets that close to the bright light of God in the person of Jesus, he cannot help but feel his own sinfulness in a fresh way. You see, a genuine encounter with Jesus is an encounter with God's almighty power and his blazing holiness. And for sinners like you and me, there ought to be something unsettling about an encounter with Jesus. For Simon Peter, he was left very unsettled by coming that close to Jesus. And I wonder if that's ever the case for us as we meet Jesus in in the word, in the Bible. Do we ever get unsettled by him? Don't domesticate Jesus. It's very easy to do, to to turn him into Jesus, my life coach, uh, Jesus, my pal, Jesus, my spiritual comfort blanket. Now, the truth is Jesus is the kindest, most loving, most gracious, most forgiving being that has ever walked the earth. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing as wonderful, as valuable, as worthy in this world as knowing him. But he is also almighty God in human flesh. And if you cannot, if you cannot imagine meeting Jesus being a little bit terrifying in one sense, then I would suggest that the Jesus in your mind is not the Jesus of history and the Bible. Don't water him down or domesticate him. I've put up on the screen some words of John Calvin, the reformer. He wrote this about this verse. Though men may seek God's presence with unending prayer, Yet they are bound to be struck with fear as soon as he appears. Indeed, made faint for terror and fright unless he gives relief. There is excellent reason for them to seek God so urgently, for they are bound to feel their condition without his presence is unhappy. Yet his presence is so terrifying that they immediately begin to feel less than nothing. And with what a pile of evils they are overcome. The truth is, when we encounter God, his perfect light will always, always expose my inner darkness. You can put it this way. When we meet him, Jesus always says to us, don't be afraid. He will always say that to you, don't be afraid. But the fact is, he needs to say that to you. 
And you must hold both of those. If your idea of Jesus is really tame and you can't imagine why he would ever need to say, don't be afraid, then you've missed the holy might of God as Jesus is revealed in Scripture. But if all you are is terrified, oh, well, then you've missed how kind and forgiving he is. You've forgotten actually the second part of the reading we won't look at tonight where he reaches out and touches the man with leprosy and heals him. Jesus always says to us, don't be afraid, but Jesus really needs to say it because of who he is. So Peter falls in fearful worship, and then secondly, Jesus doesn't condemn, he commissions. Now, Jesus' response to Simon is not, oh, no, you're not sinful. You need to, you need to rid yourself of your negative self-image, banish those thoughts, and believe in yourself a bit more. Now, Jesus can see depths to Peter's sin that he cannot even imagine himself. He knows that this man, after all Jesus has done for him, is going to say three times, I don't know who he is. You want to kill him? Fine by me. I don't know who he is. Oh, Jesus can see depths of depravity in Simon. Simon has no idea about. But Jesus hasn't come to condemn him. He's come to call him, to commission him. Look at the second half of verse 10. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So Jesus says, look, I want you to carry on fishing. You're pretty good at that, especially with my help. You're pretty good at fishing, but I want you to catch people, not fish. And I want you to use the words of the gospel, not the mesh of a net. Now, the fundamental job of the church, of all Christian people, since the days of Jesus, has been to make disciples. That is, to fish to go out into the world and tell people about Jesus and then help them understand what it means to follow him. Now, Simon Peter has a particular foundational role. He's a capital A apostle. But Jesus wants all of us to be involved in this work. And you'll notice that although the focus is on Simon here, we keep being told, and the others who were with him, we're all called to be fishers of men and women for Jesus. I know of one church where whenever somebody gets a new job, they bring them up to the front of church and commission them to be a missionary into their new workplace. And there is something healthy about that attitude. There's something healthy about it. We are all, if you trust in Jesus, you are commissioned and sent by him to be a fisher of men and women in your family, your place of work, your sports clubs, your friendship groups. We are all fishers of men sent to take the good news that Jesus Christ has died for you to a dying world. That Jesus Christ gives forgiveness and new life to a sinful world. That there is hope for a hopeless world. Now what's interesting I think though is that what happens in verse 10 would probably be very different. If verse 10 was lost from our Bibles and we had to recreate it. And we knew that... uh, Before it, uh, Simon meets Jesus and he's a bit freaked out, understandably. And then afterwards, we know that he leaves everything to follow him. I think we would probably put a couple of years into the second half of verse 10. And Jesus would say something like, uh, look, I'd like you to think, Simon. I know you've only just started to think about these, but I'd like you to think about whether you might in the future uh, think about doing um, ministry, coming to serve with me. I know, I don't want to put any pressure on you. I don't want you making a rash decision. But maybe a little down the line, uh, once you've established the fishing business, maybe then it would be uh, something to think about uh, in the future. Now, the real Jesus just says, come now. That's it. In the real gospel, he just says, drop the nets. You've got a new career. Let's go. 
the real Jesus is rather blunt. There's no if you feel called because he's the king of the universe. You just you do what he said. There's a couple of toddlers now in our house and they're, they're having to learn that um, when we say stuff, they have to do them. And it's mildly frustrating, I'm finding, when a toddler tells you, no, that's not what we're doing. We're having sweets. And, no, we're not. I'm in charge and you're eating this or throwing it around. Um, we're human beings. Jesus is God. I know we don't like to say these things, but he does get to tell us what to do. That's part of being God. <laughs> and he calls Peter and says, follow me. Now, the gospel, as I say, the call to put your trust in Jesus, it is important that we understand it is not a request. It's a command. Now, if you're looking into the Christian faith, it is important that you work out the answers to your questions, that you think things through, you look at the evidence. That is very important. And as a church, we're very committed to to enabling you to do that. And there are lots of ways you can do that. Uh, Talk to any of the staff afterwards. There are lots of ways you can do that. But the danger is that we can fool ourselves into thinking we're in charge. That the biggest question is, what do I think of Jesus? That I'm in control. It's, it's all about me deciding and Jesus is sat meekly there thinking, oh, I hope you like me enough to follow me. It's not like that. Jesus is God. He commands us to follow. Uh, whether we do or not, well, that's a different thing. But he commands. He's God. He gets to do that. And ultimately, he is the one we'll stand before. So Peter falls in fearful worship, and Jesus doesn't condemn. He commissions, he calls, he commands. And finally, Peter leaves everything to follow. Now, there is a very real sense in which what happens in verse 11 is a picture of the the Christian life. You notice it's plural. It's not just Simon at this point. So they pulled up their boats up on the shore, left everything, and it's plural, they followed him. To be a Christian is to leave everything and follow Jesus. Becoming a Christian is like a parachute jump in that sense. You can't half parachute jump. You either get out the plane or you stay in the plane. There's no sort of testing the water about it. It's a whole commitment thing. And that's the picture we get of the gospel. You certainly can't read this passage and think, ah, okay, so if I want to become a Christian, I can cut a deal with Jesus. Uh, He's happy for me to go part-time, see whether it works out. You know, you can't say, look, I like the idea of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but there are one or two non-negotiables before I commit myself to you. Uh, Standard of living, I'm I'm quite keen on a certain standard of living. I hope that's all right. Um, And I do have final say in the stuff to do with my relationships. As long as we're okay with that, then I would love to follow you, Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't calling us to a negotiation. He calls us to follow. That doesn't necessarily mean every single one of us here must quit our jobs tomorrow and sell everything we have and go and become missionaries to Kyrgyzstan or wherever. It it doesn't mean that. But it does mean I cannot say to Jesus, look, I'll follow you, but it must not mean this. I just can't do that with him. I don't know if you've seen journalist Michael Hart's 1978 book, The 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history. It's the kind of book that uh, people quote from but never actually read. 
um, much like I'm about to do. Um, but <laughs> the truth is, you don't have to really read it to get uh, what's interesting from it. It's a serious list. There's not a Kardashian or a Beatle inside. I mean, 1978, there wouldn't be a Kardashian, but there's no, not even any Beatles, no entertainers. Shakespeare doesn't even make it. Homer only sneaks in at number 98. It's all sort of scientists and politicians and philosophers and religious leaders. But what's really interesting is the top three. Jesus is not number one. He's not even number two. That's Muhammad and Isaac Newton. Jesus comes in at number three. And when he explains why the most influential man in all of history doesn't come as number one in your list of the most influential people in history, his reasoning was striking. His, his observation was, he said, my observation is that Muhammad affects the daily life of Muslims far more than Jesus teaching an example affects the daily life of Christians. Ouch. Now, this is one man's comment. But that's a worrying comment for a journalist making this survey. He says, look, Jesus was an incredibly influential person, but the truth is that these days, as I look around the world, I don't see that those who call themselves Christians particularly follow his teaching or example. But the pattern here, the pattern we get from Simon and the others is that they left everything and they followed Jesus. No caveats, no negotiation, no bringing old habits, old lifestyles with them, complete surrender, complete obedience. And I find that really challenging, looking through that this week, thinking, is that what I'm like? And what about us tonight? Will you put down your nets? Will you put down your career ambition? Material comfort, the desire for material comfort to follow Jesus. He might call you to give up your job. He does call all of us to give our money in radical ways to see the gospel spread and to see the poor helped. What about will you give up your longing to be popular and well thought of? Are you willing to leave that behind to follow Jesus? To stand with him when his word says things that are really quite unpopular in our culture today. In every culture, things Jesus says are unpopular. But will you leave behind that desire to be popular and well thought of? Are you willing to leave behind the desire to control your area of sex and relationships? Such a core part of our identity, especially in this culture. Am I willing to obey Jesus there and to leave behind my desire to control? Will you, ultimately, the question is, will you leave behind the desire to have final say on how your life goes and follow Jesus? That's the ultimate question. Well, okay, put in those terms, how on earth does anybody turn to follow Jesus? I mean, seriously, when the bar's that high, it's not a great sales pitch, is it? Leave everything and follow him. That's a, that's a very hard sales pitch. Well, the reason that people down the centuries and even today are leaving everything to follow him is because of who he is. And you see, that catch of fish wasn't only a picture for Peter of what his future life would be, of what his future job would be. It's also a concrete proof that Jesus has the power to provide for Peter whatever the future brings. Jesus has the power. 
Jesus' authority is not the only reason that Peter leaves everything to go. You see, as he walks into the unknown, Simon Peter is following the man who has shown power over sickness and death, power over nature. He is following the man who has filled his nets. Here is a man who can provide for him whatever the future holds. See, the fish in every sea, the money in every bank account, all of it, it's in Jesus' hands. And so when he calls us to follow him, we follow him, the God who has the universe in his hands, the God who is not stingy or short or lacking in resources, the God who can and who does provide. It's interesting, um, when you look at the last thing Peter wrote in the Bible, the, the letter of 2 Peter, towards the end of his life, he looked back on his experience of leaving everything to follow Jesus. And he writes in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. That's his That's his testimony as he looks back on a life of leaving everything to follow him. He's given me everything I needed to follow him. And he carries on to say that there will be a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom for those who've done so. See, Simon was able to follow Jesus in part because Jesus had filled his nets. He saw who he was and he saw what he'd done. Now, I'm not Simon. Jesus hasn't filled my nets with fish. I'm not sure I'd be particularly chuffed with a huge net of fish. I'm not sure what I'd do with it. But he has filled all of us who trust in him in different ways. See, he's filled himself with all your sins and then died to pay for them. He is the one who has reached out and touched us and taken our uncleanness and given us his purity. He has filled you with forgiveness, righteousness, the presence of the Holy Spirit and the promise of eternal life. And so when he calls us, as he does, leave everything to follow me. Well, the me who calls us to do that has always given far more than he's ever asked. He is the one who has loved us and given even his own life for us. Follow him. Let's pray. Our Father God, what extraordinary words these are that Jesus would would come and command people to leave everything to follow him. But we thank you that because he is God and that because he is saviour, it is not a foolish thing to give up everything to follow him. No one who has given everything to follow him has regretted it in eternity. And we pray therefore you would give us the courage to do that. Forgive us where we're clinging on to bits of our lives and unwilling to turn away from things he calls us from. Help us to see how rich and how full life is with him and to turn and follow him. Amen.